Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. So, it is, it feels like, officially summer. As you can see, when, I, when we created this design... You know, it's a swimming pool, obviously, and it, we've been in this series for a few weeks, so it felt a little premature, you know? It was like April, and we're like, I don't know, swimming pool, you never know, but now it feels very timely. I am very excited about water and being cold in the midst of the heat, and uh, if you've already been to the pool, then good for you. But uh, I haven't really communicated this, but the, the series cover was, was an idea of, of jumping into the deep end, of being in a pool, swimming in the shallow, and jumping into the deep end. The book of Acts has been that in so many ways, and I'm really excited to continue to go through this. Uh, If you have a Bible or your phone, you're going to be in the book of Acts. We also have one in the back, one or two. If you need one, you can raise your hand. Jerry will get you one, and you can keep that if you'd like. We're going to be in Acts chapter 3. We've been going through verse by verse. We've had some pretty awesome moments. Um, We had a couple weeks ago, because we took off last week, We talked about one of the most famous passages in the book of Acts. It's this really, really beautiful uh, initial community, the early church. Like they just, Peter goes up in front of all these people and he's like, hey, we were speaking in tongues. We're not drunk. Uh, It's the spirit, which is technically what would have been today, the the Pentecost Sunday. And and 3,000 people come to Jesus in that, that awesome sermon and repentance. And so they're just trying to figure out what to do. They're like, okay, 3,000 people, this is a mess. And so some of the things they do, we talked about, was they, they have teaching, because they're trying to figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus, what does this mean in light of the, the way that we've been Jewish and living and, and all this. They had fellowship, uh, which the, the Greek word koinonia is this beautiful word, and I describe it as relational participation, that you don't just sit and consume, but that you're a part of a family, that you are known and, and know others as a part of that. Uh, that's one of the reasons why David told his story is because even though he's nervous and he's, but I was like, dude, like when you get up here, you are letting people into your life and it's terrifying because you're letting people into your life, but it's also the most beautiful thing when people know you, they know your heart, they know your past and they can love you better because of it. And uh, you give people the opportunity then for them to step forward and to be known. So this relational participation, then they also had breaking of bread. They had hospitality meals together. And this culture of meals was this mat, like this great thing. And so they're just eating food. And, it, and, and, the, and then the last one is probably pretty obvious, but prayer. And you, you talk about these four things. It doesn't seem like revolutionary, right? It just seems pretty simple. And it seems like, yeah, that makes sense um, with these tons of people. But they're just trying to figure things out. And today is this really exciting opportunity where I feel like you see the, these, these uh, rhythms start to come to fruition in uh, what is a really, really cool miracle. We talked about as well a couple weeks ago how the book of Acts can be confusing because there's several different things going on and unless you have a holistic approach of it you can start to pull things from it that you you hold higher weight to and what I mean by that is I had this really like confusing triple circle tri-diagram I'm not going to draw it out again today but it's in our podcast if you want to look at it but basically there's there's three areas of of kind of following Jesus there's your mind there's your heart and there's your hands or head heart and hands and to, you want to have right thinking in your mind, you want to have right feeling in your heart, and you want to have right doing in your hands. And if you, if you do all three of those holistically, you have this really beautiful picture of what it means to be Jesus, to follow Jesus. 
But if you only have two or you overemphasize one over the other, you start to have some sort of wonky issues. If you are uh, really in your head and your hands, but you have no heart behind it, you turn into like a Pharisee and you just do things because it's what you were taught or, or you start to have this moral superiority that you think you're better than other people, which I'm sure no Christians have ever been guilty of that. And then you have uh, the people who are like right feeling, right? They have like really, really good feelings and right doing, but they don't necessarily have the, the, the head and the intellect, the right thinking, and they don't necessarily read the Bible, and they start to do things kind of in a rebellious way or more of a mystical way. It's kind of like a spiritual buffet, and they don't really have any rules. And we know in the Word of God that there are a lot of clear truths that are important. Or you could be the third, which is uh, you basically have the right head and the right heart, but you don't do anything. You're just a cozy, lazy Christian who likes comfy chairs and uh, to just be coddled and spoon-fed. So to have all three of these, the book of Acts, we have to focus on all three of these aspects. And so today in Acts 3, we're going to talk about what is considered a miracle, for lack of better terms. A miracle, and then there's a message, and then the results of that. This is the first really, really radical miracle, other than the Spirit coming, uh, that we see. So it's pretty exciting. It's like the first time they're seeing the Spirit fully in action. So in, in Acts chapter 3, we're going to read a little bit here, so if you might want to follow along. Uh, in Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Here is the story. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time for prayer. Remember, they're still, um, they're still Jewish, still going to the times for prayer at the temple. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and a man lame from birth was being carried up, who was placed at the temple gate called the Beautiful Gate every day so he could beg for money from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple courts, he asked them for money. Peter looked directly at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. So the lame man paid attention to them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, stand up and walk. Then Peter took a hold of him by the right hand and raised him up. And at once the man's feet and ankles were made strong. He jumped up, stood, and began walking around. And he entered the temple courts with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the man who used to sit and ask for donations at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with astonishment and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, this is, this is pretty wild. There's a lot going on here, okay? Uh, you got this beggar who's sitting at the temple gate, uh, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of like, cultural things that we sometimes miss here. This man... Lame from birth, the Greek would imply that maybe his ankles just didn't work or like something in his feet or ankles area. He just never walked. It didn't mean that he did have like his arms probably were fine, the rest of his body, but couldn't walk. Now, in this culture, if you had any sort of disability, it was not just, you know, a one in a thousand chance. It was that you had some sort of generational sin or problem from your parents that was not atoned for and God was cursing you. And therefore, you are unclean. So can you imagine not only bad enough being born without something or, or not something working, but then also just being a cultural outcast because of that that had no relation to, we know now that it's not necessarily how it works. We don't just treat people like they're cursed because they have physical ailments. Uh, in this culture, it was seen as a curse. And, and so the reason we think about this, the reason why he's standing at these gates is because he's not allowed in the temple. Because he's unclean, because he's cursed, because he would, he would ruin the, the cleanliness atmosphere of the temple. So he's standing outside the gates, and what better place to beg for money than at the temple? In fact, Jews 
one of their like virtues was giving alms, which was to the poor. This would be like the modern day, like if you're a beggar and you sit outside Chick-fil-A, I think you'll do better than other places because us Christians love Chick-fil-A and we're supposed to be generous. Although I, I don't know, maybe we're not even as generous as other people nowadays, but it's like that. It's like I'm going to go stand somewhere where I know I'm going to bump shoulders with people whose value it is to be generous to me. And so he stands at this gate, he's sitting at this gate, and, you know, can you imagine every day, like, getting picked up by someone, being dropped off, laying there all day, begging for money so that you can probably go home and have people help you and pay them to help you. And this is just your life. And it's, and it's for 40 years, this has been his life. And, it, you know, I don't know about you if you drive around this area a lot, but I've already started to identify the consistent homeless people who are in this area, like the same ones who beg in the street, the same corners, who... Uh, who are, like, yeah, just in the same spots and been that way for months, if not years. You start to know them, and I drive by them all the time, right? Like, some of them, like, I've, I've talked with briefly. Um, some of them I haven't, but they're, they're there every time, right? That's their place. And it's interesting because after a while, you do start to notice your glance, like, become less and less on them. Like, I'm going to drive past Wendy's. There's going to be a guy sitting right there on King Avenue, right down this road, that sits there and begs there and then lives under the bridge, you know, 100 yards across the road, right? And it's like, uh, it's just who it is, right? I don't even look at him anymore. And so this moment caught me very surprised because Peter and, and John have been going to this temple three times a day for prayer for a very long time. They've been in Jerusalem now for at least a few months. Like, they've seen this guy, right? It's not like, oh my gosh, there's this guy, this doorstep, right? Like, nothing new had happened here. And, and to add uh, to add it even even more, I, I think significant. There's ten different gates into this court, and he's at what's called. If you look in your Bible, it says the beautiful gate. And you're like, okay, well, I'm sure it's all beautiful. It's a temple, right? This gate was the most beautiful. There was nine gates that were made of gold. This gate had a unique um, metal. I believe it's copper. Yeah, Corinthian. Sorry, Corinthian bronze. So massive, it took twenty men to close it. So he's at, like, the prettiest gate in the temple, uh, and he's just sitting there begging it. It's kind of interesting when you think about, like, the most beautiful landmark and then, like, a piece of trash right in the yard. That's what it felt like to people. It's like you're going to this beautiful, sacred area, and here's the riffraff that can't go in sitting at the gate. There's this clear divide and separation of those who are in and those who are out. And we know that in this culture, like, it was a really, really, really big deal. He would be unclean unless he became healed. He would not ever be clean again. So this man doesn't, deserve, doesn't have anything like deserve this healing. And what's so interesting is this moment where Peter and John all of a sudden decide to look at this man. If you look in the, in the reading and you look at it closely, what's occurring here is that this, this um, beggar is like, you know, doing your classic, like instead of holding up a sign like they do nowadays in people's cars, you know, he's saying, can you spare some change, right? Can you spare some change or whatever? And he's just saying that and he's making eye contact with each person. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, like, veteran beggars, they know, like, they can know immediately within a split second if you're going to give or not, which is why, like, if you watch them in a line of cars, like, they'll be walking over to a car before they even put down their window. They just know, you know? You get pretty good at it. And what's happening is he's, he's saying this, he's locking eyes, and he's always looking to the next person, right? And he already had taken his gaze off Peter and John and was looking at someone else. And that's why Peter's like, hey, look at me. In that moment of eye contact, you know, he's like, oh, okay, like, I must have missed them. They're going to give me money. Only to the sad disappointment, hey, I don't have any money, you know. And I'm sure in that moment, like, oh, okay, great. But what, it, what is so fascinating to me, and I want to get in a little bit, is what, what occurred in Peter's heart 
or John's heart, that every day, two, three times a day, they walk by this man, they think nothing of it, and then all of a sudden, there's, there's a difference. They stop, right? Maybe you've had that. You've walked by a homeless person like 50 times. You're like, you know what? This time, I'm going to give him money, or I'm going you know, to buy a meal, or I have something in my car. I'm going to give it to him, right? Like, all of a sudden, it changes, and you can kind of ask yourself, why didn't I do that the first 50 times, right? Like, why did I all of a sudden, why did it flip? And I want to leave that question looming as, as we talk about what God is doing here in the book of Acts. Luke is writing this, and it's, it's, he loves healings. He loves miracles. He's, very, he's a doctor, so he loves like the, the, the justifying, the supernatural aspect of this. But what, what is so cool about Luke putting this here, and I think what we see about God, is that God is not just concerned with large masses of people. He is concerned with one lost sheep. And the reason why I say that and I see that is because just earlier, Peter had gave a sermon to 3,000 people came to Christ. Like, big temple court, massive, awesome sermon. People are like, amazing, and they're giving their hearts to Jesus, right? It's like Billy Graham in a stadium, right? But then all of a sudden, he's, he's walking his normal rhythm of his day, and he's stopped by one person. And I think that's so powerful to think about that Peter and John they really are walking with the Spirit because they're not consumed just with preaching to as many people as they can and just running as many for they can as Christ. Is. If I could just speak to more people and just, you know, more influence, more leverage, more whatever, right? Even these, this one person who has nothing to offer me has immense value in God's heart. And we see Peter just in this beautiful, like, emulation of Christ. In fact, when I was reading it in my study time, I was actually thinking about... Um, the beauty of, of Jesus in this famous passage where he, he says that his heart hurt, his heart and his gut hurt uh, for the people that he saw that were lost. After he, he, the people are hungry, uh, that he's going to feed them, and it says that he has compassion on them. The, the, uh, the Greek word is, is remarkable here. It is, uh, I can't even say it correctly. I'm trying to find it. It's splank, splank no meza. I think it's 16 letters long. But basically what it stands for is, is your, your, they call it your gut or your seat of affections. They thought that your soul and your heart was actually here. Because when you feel something deeply, you feel it here. Weirdly enough, I don't know if you've ever felt that. Like going on a roller coaster, you don't, oh my gosh, my heart. No, you're like, no, my gut is like up here now. And so when you feel something deeply, it would, it would almost, it would mess with your bowels. It would be so deep inside of you. And that's how Jesus felt. And I think it's so cool to think, Peter is, I think, feeling that same thing, that one lost sheep. His heart, all of a sudden, goes out to him. He feels the weight of him. And, and I, I, I think, okay, well, why, what, what happened where all of a sudden now he's going to turn and have a moment with this man? Well, let's just think about leading up to that. What are they doing, right? They're spending consistent time in teaching fellowship, prayer, koinonia, breaking of bread, Right? I, th- I think they, they start to be the church. They start to learn. They start to gather. They start to grow. And in light of that, that faithfulness, I think it's just simple obedience in those things, the Spirit starts to give them opportunities. And the Spirit starts to give them opportunities to where they actually start to have a heart, a burden for people so that they respond. I think about that with so many people. is like we, we have these people in our lives who we've never really never really felt a weight for. Like, yes, we sure want them to be in heaven with us one day. We want them to experience the freedom of Christ, but we don't, like, have this burden. It doesn't weigh on us. We don't lose sleep at night. We don't walk by them and feel it in our core. And finally, Peter feels that feeling, and he can't stop anymore. 
And so he just stops, and he just says, look at me. And I think looking him in the eyes, like the humanity that he deserves, right? How many of us don't even look at homeless people because we're afraid if we look at them, then they're going to, you know, oh, they want something, right? We don't even look at them. He looks him in the eyes, and he says, I don't have what you want, basically, right? I don't have what you want, but I have something else. According to this is an old uh, little fable uh, a man named Cornelius recounts a story where Thomas Aquinas, who was a famous, uh, famous um, Catholic, he, uh, he once was with Pope Innocent II. How about a name, Pope Innocent, right? <laughs> Surely he didn't have any sins, right? Pope Innocent II, while he was counting out a large sum of money, okay, counting out a large sum of money, he said, no, yeah, you're laughing, right? He says, you see, Thomas, said the Pope, the church can no longer say silver and gold have I none because he was counting large amounts. But he's saying we, can, we cannot blame, you know, like God is faithful. We have all that we need, right? And, and Thomas replies, true Holy Father, neither can we now say rise and walk. And, and what it's doing is it's reminding us that sure, money is freedom in some ways, right? I don't think we would argue that, right? Financial freedom, get out of debt, can buy you happiness sometimes, right? Money can do those things. But the greatest freedom that we need is not money. It's, it's pointing to our heart. And you can have all the money in the world, but if, if, in some ways it's actually more powerful that he didn't have money because he was able to just cut right to the chase. Look, I'm not going to buy your affection here. I'm just going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to like rise and get up in the name of Jesus. And, and, and Jesus is going to cut straight to your heart. I love this story because oftentimes we do think, oh, more money will solve the problem, right? Or more, uh, like more money or more, um, the better teacher or better friends or a better job, right? Like you name it, right? Oh, it'll solve the problem. My, my heart just needs this thing. It just needs more vacation. It just needs this item that Instagram is sending me at 1130 at night, that I know I don't need, but I will buy it and have it tomorrow, and for some reason, I thought I needed it, right? Like, these things that we think we need, right? It will not satisfy, and Peter and John have literally nothing walking to this temple, and he tells them, hey, I got nothing, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. This is, this is getting into the point, and over the next several weeks, we'll see this, where ordinary men see extraordinary things happening just because of the Spirit. That's all they have. That's all they have. That's all we can have. Actually, we probably have more than them. We probably have more money than them. We probably have more, more um, intellect, like more, more um, schooling, more just more information than these guys do. We are far more equipped in days of life than they are. But they have this beautiful power of the Spirit. And, and, I, and it starts to ask the question, what is different than with me? Right? Like, what, what is, and, 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 you know, you try to grapple with, like, just the, the, the biological aspect of this healing. You're like, okay, well, I don't heal people. I don't just be like, yo, get up, man. You're, you know, I don't do that. So what, where's the disconnect here? Is it just that? Is it different time, different stage, different spirit, different whatever? And, and I, I think, honestly, that's the wrong, actually the wrong rabbit trail to go down. The reason why is because I think that the baseline of this story is men who had nothing, had something, which was the Spirit, and it gave way to great power in other people's lives. So there isn't a person in this room that is not capable of having the Spirit do powerful things in yours and other people's lives. 
the only thing, the only prerequisite we can see from this is they were in the rhythms that we think were good for the church, for them, and they had a burden for the people who's, who God had a burden for. That's the only prerequisite. There's no, there's no need for anything else. Sometimes we feel like, well, I don't have this resource, or I don't have this talent, or I'm not smart enough, or whatever, right? We make these excuses, and Peter's like, I got nothing. Here you go. But the coolest thing about this from the miracle, moving on to he gives a message, right? He does the miracle, and now he's going to explain it, because people are, like, freaking out, right? He's in the temple courts. This man who they'd seen for 40 years, right? They know his name, and they're like, why is he in here? He's not allowed in here. Oh, my gosh, he's walking, right? Like, imagine they're thinking, like, that's the guy who used to sit out there, who I've ignored for the last 20 years, and now he's in here, which isn't right, but then, oh, my gosh, he's walking. So what? You know, like, nobody's going to play a sick joke for 40 years and be like, I can't walk, and then... Ha ha, you know, it's not like Willy Wonka, you know, with the grandpa. I don't buy, you're like, that's a good pull. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. If you were laying in bed for that long, your legs would not just work in four seconds. And then we never talk about it again, right? He just walks into the factory and he's fine. I'm more of a, I'm more of a um, Johnny Depp version myself, so. Boo, yeah. Yeah. Back to the scripture, Trey. All right. <laughs> Verse 11, chapter 3. Peter addresses the crowd. Now, when this man was hanging on to Peter and John, which I think I, if the man made me walk, I think I'd be pretty interested in hanging out with him too. All the people, completely astounded, ran together to them, covered in the covered walkway called Solomon's Portico. This is this giant area inside of the temple gates where they would, they would do a lot of their teaching because they didn't have anywhere to meet, anywhere to go. And when Peter saw this, these people are gathering around, he declared to them, this is a pretty cool move, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as if we had made this man walk by our own power or piety? Uh, one commentator just wrote very simply, practically, he, he said, all effective ministry begins with self-denial. And I'm like, that is a great bumper sticker. Put that on someone's car. All effective ministry, the things that we do in light of Jesus, has nothing to do with us. Sure, God has given you gifts and talents and skills and a situation that you can minister in, but, but if you're willing to absorb that for yourself, you're going to have some serious problems. And so Peter's immediately like, yeah, yeah, we didn't do this. Sure, I said some things, but we didn't do this by our power. Let me tell you who did it. And then he says in verse 13, it's a long passage, I'm just going to read a few verses he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, this is the God of your forefathers. They know all these people. He's saying, the God that you serve right now in this temple glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over. You rejected in the presence of Pilate after you decided to release him. But what would you do? You rejected the holy and righteous one and asked that a man who was a murderer be released to you. Remember, remember um, Barabbas? They had to pick between Jesus and Barabbas one day a year. It's this weird game the Romans play where they release one prisoner who's on death row, which is just so weird. And they're like, who do you want to be, Jesus or Barabbas? They're like, let's take the murderer. And then they're like, okay, we're going to kill Jesus. Jesus trades his life for a murderer. And he says, you killed the originator of life whom God raised from the dead. That's probably the most pointed statement in that entire passage. And then, and then he says, we are witnesses of this. And on the basis of faith in Jesus' name, his very name made this man well. His very name, whom you see and know strong. That faith is through Jesus has given him what? Complete health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance as your rulers did too, but the things God foretold long ago through the prophets that Christ would suffer has been fulfilled. Therefore, this is Peter's great line, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out so that times 
of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And then he ends in verse 26, skipping down to the bottom. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each one of you from your iniquities. Peter is, this is sermon number two for Peter, and he is once again not pulling any punches. You guys killed Jesus. You traded him for a murderer. He's the guy that you've been waiting for for centuries that you knew and was foretold. And he was here and lived the life and died and rose again. And if you, if you want to see this power and you, and you believe in what God can do, and it says the refreshing presence of the Lord, I love that, then repent, repent you've got to turn back. Repent and turn back. And I, I think about this like, you know, it's pretty similar to the, the one we talked about a few weeks ago, but I love how he draws this into a physical reality. So for instance, like if you're sitting here and you're like, okay, sin, kind of an abstract idea, right? You can tell me this is sin, it's a physical thing, but the idea of sin, what is it actually doing, right? I don't, I don't feel like this separation from God physically when I sin. So like, what is, where, where is this reality of sin? It seems kind of abstract. And then you have the forgiveness of sins. What, is, like, what does that mean? Like, how do I know that's happening? Is it just I say something and then there's this supernatural reality that just wipes it all away and then God can fully like, see me again? Like, it seems kind of confusing. But what, what Peter and John are doing here is giving you a physical understanding of what is occurring spiritually. And they're saying, hey, this man was crippled. He had an illness, a problem. And I would say sin is by far crippling. Whether you're crippled by the weight of pornography and lust, you're crippled by addiction and drugs, alcohol, etc. You're crippled by debt, gambling. You're crippled by anxiety, social pressure, fear of others. You're crippled by wealth, status, pride, right? These things literally cripple you. Now, some you can hide better than others, right? If that man was not sitting at the gate every day, he could have hidden his like, lameness. Like, he could have found ways to sit and never be noticed, right? And he's like out front, and he's like, I, here I am. Here's, here's my stuff, right? When we are willing to share our, our crippling, our burdens, we, we bring them into the light, it gives us this, this precipice and this place for great change. And what's so cool then in deeper implications of this beautiful gate, right, is you're seeing the most beautiful gate experience and journey to walk through it, in the midst of that, there's this crippled sin sitting there, tarnishing, I hate to use that, tarnishing this, this experience. And so not only is, is God freeing this man, allowing him to be in, in, in the temple with all these other people, he's like, he's removing any sort of darkness or appearance of darkness in this journey to the temple. He's doing so many things here that we see in this really symbolic way. So whatever you're crippled by, you name your thing, you know it in your head, right? Some people might know, or you might have never told anyone. You might be hiding it. Something is crippling you, right? And the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to do a work in your life. Now, you might experience that physically. You might experience that emotionally. You might experience that just merely spiritually. But Jesus has come to set you free. And what he's doing here is what happens after the miracle. He's not like, oh, great, I can walk again. I'm just going to stand here and keep begging. No, no, no repentance, what does he do? He turns from, and he had to live that way, right? Sin enabled him to live that way. I'm done with that. I'm healed. What does he do? He runs into the temple. I am clean now. I am made right. And I can go anywhere I want. And I'm going to jump and dance. Because praise Jesus, right? Since he was jumping, right? I'd be jumping too if my legs didn't work 40 years. I'm like, let's test these bad boys out. If there was a hoop, he would have dunked. I guarantee it, right? But, but, He's like, let's go, right? And, and, and in the same way, like, th- there is such spiritual 
implications to this. We are sitting crippled. We are not able to have access to, to the Father because of the sin and the malevolence and the evil. If it, we were able to be in the presence of God with that, then it would tarnish His holiness and His true love for creation and for us. So what happens is, we sit and we beg and we try to just think that wealth, we try to think these things will accumulate happiness or we just have no, nothing else, right? We're just hopeless. We're like, well, this is what we do, right? And all of a sudden, the Spirit comes on the scene and somebody just looks you in the eyes, picks you up by the hand, which was also a terrible idea for Peter because now if he picked him up and he didn't walk, now Peter's unclean and he can't go into the temple, right? Picks him up by the hand, he looks him in the eyes and he says, Jesus Christ, heal you. In the name of Jesus Christ... And in that moment, spiritual oppression is gone. Now, obviously, he's physically healed, but I think a lot more went on than just physical healing. And for us, there's so many strongholds that we have that, that I just, man, we just are crippled. And we, and we kind of know it, but we kind of feel stuck, and we'd rather just, we get used to this. You wake up every day, you sit at the gate, you make a few things to change, you know some people, and you just think that's better than, right? why would I get my hopes up? I'm going to be let down. And, and, and Jesus is here to bring us hope. The, the best story to describe this um, is in September of 1900, so quite, quite a few years ago, there was a killer hurricane that bore down on Galveston Island. Galveston Island is a small, tiny island. It has one bridge connected to the island from the mainland, and it's the only evacuation route for thousands. It's kind of like, um, what's that movie with Will Smith where there's like the one gate and they close the gate? Is it I Am Legend? Yeah, there's like the one gate, right? And they're like, we're going to blow it up. And then he gets, right, stays there. It's kind of like that. It was like one bridge to evacuate. And even without modern-day detection systems, this is 1900, right? The coming hurricane was spotted. Ample warnings were given. No sign. And there were no visible signs, though, right? Because the hurricane was far off. People were like, I don't see it. I don't care. And what do they, what do, they do? They're living on the island. They don't leave at all. They don't see the hurricane. They don't hear its fury. So they choose to do nothing. And then when the terrible storm struck killed 6,000 people, and the entire city was destroyed. They had this great way to leave. But they, they were just like so content and stuck in the way, well, this is the way things are, this is what I'm used to, that they weren't willing to uproot themselves to repent, to turn away from what was impending danger. And 6,000 people died, the whole city destroyed. Now, today, there's a giant sea concrete wall that stands as a barrier, and it's, it's this like eerie reminder of like, hey, this is what happens when people don't trust in the words of truth and of life. And I think in the same way that Peter is giving us this beautiful uh, invitation for all of us. I've said this before. I'll say it again. You might not be a Christian, and this might be an opportunity for you to first time repent and turn away, right? You might be a Christian your whole life, and you still have things you need to repent and turn away from. And if you're not willing to acknowledge that, then pride is getting its best in you. And so we all can take this and say, okay, what are the things right now that are crippling me? If you've ever got a tangled mess of a fishing line or a hose, uh, if, you, if you think, eh, whatever, like I, I do this with my garden hose. I have like a really, really long garden hose. And I'll roll it all up nice. It'll lay there, right? And then I'll use it. And it's just hopeless, right? I'll pull it out and then it just kinks and knots. And I'm like, what, what do I do? I could spend the time to, to unravel it all and make it good again. Or I just throw it back on a pile, right? That's all good until I use it for about four or five times. And the entire thing is just kinked up and, and knots and doesn't even work anymore. Had I have just noticed, hey, there's small things that are, that are coming at me. Had I have noticed there's small things in the hose that I need to address, I wouldn't have to deal with this larger, larger issue. And I think for a lot of us, there's things in your life right now that are slowly starting to grab a hold of you. 
or there's patterns you're falling back into. There's ruts that, that you have in your life that you're not acknowledging, that I'm, that I'm not acknowledging. And we have to remind ourselves that, that the Holy Spirit is right there. So there's two responses from this. I love how uh, in, uh, in chapter 4, really quick, just these, all the Pharisees come, come out of the priests. They are not happy. They are angry. They throw them in jail. And that will be a story next week. But there's opposition, which there always is, right, to the story of Jesus. Always opposition. The devil is always trying to get a foothold in people's lives and, and, and build up um, distrust. The second part is there's tons of people who believe in this. 2,000 people, because the number of men only, which was only men, so far more, came to 2,000. So tons of people come to Jesus from this moment. Again, repentance, and it's amazing. But, but what, we, what we realize is that there are people always that will be on both sides that will reject this. And those who are willing, are humbled, are willing to repent, find true freedom in light of that. And so I want to invite up uh, the band as we kind of transition to a time of closing here. I, uh, I want to close with this beautiful gate we've been talking about. And I, I should have put a photo up, but I didn't. Um, like I said, there's deep symbolism to this man who's standing at this specific gate and what Jesus is doing here in light of fulfilling the Old Testament in beautiful ways. But the beautiful gate reminds me of something. I don't know if you've ever flown over like big cities at night. Um, Miami is specifically like this, but there's other cities too where you, you fly over the city and you're like, look at all these lights. And I'm always like, I wonder what that electric bill is, right? You know, because you're like, look at all these lights. You fly over and you're like, it's beautiful. It's kind of eerie sometimes, but it's beautiful. And there's these certain sections that really only have orange lights, like tons of orange lights. Those are crime lights, right? In areas that are typically, in, in a lot of cities, higher areas of crime. So what looks beautiful you know that even though there's light, there's darkness abounding in the midst of all of those lights, right? And, and in the same way, this man of this darkness is abounding by this beautiful gate in light. And I think there's so many of us who have moments like this in our lives or people around us where their life looks pretty great. They're surrounded by all this light, but internally there's this massive crippling darkness. I think about like just, just people like this. I think about uh, a lonely woman who returns to a magnificent apartment, which has only become hers through a bitter divorce settlement, right? Or the tourists who wander through a monument, mon- monument to monument in Washington, D.C., scarcely aware they're surrounded by some of the worst street crime and drug trafficking in America. Or as you drive down the strip in Las Vegas, all the colorful lights and casinos with excitement and joy, only to realize the same place has been rampant with prostitution, sex trafficking, gambling addictions, and more. Or you look across the street to your neighbor who's got a brand new truck, and not only knowing they're in crippling debt and are lonely and bought it as a way to appease their soul. Sometimes we even have people here who come and sit acting as though things are fine, and in reality they have serious traumas, hurts, or crippling things in their life. And there are many of you here today that are experiencing that. So I just want you to know that in the midst of darkness, there is always light. And the only way that you can experience that true light and that true freedom is to repent and turn from your sins. And I don't, I don't want to say, I don't want to add more to it. I want to keep it simple. But what, what I want to add as a community while we're here today is you're not doing this alone. Like you're not sitting here one-on-one with me, which would be crazy and ridiculous. But you're sitting here with other people who, are all, who, who have or are experiencing crippling sin or problems in their lives. And what we see is Peter and John had their fair share. Just a few months ago, Peter was reinstated after being the worst leader ever in history by Jesus. He betrayed him, right? 
And now he is taking his crippling things that were there. He is being freed in the image of Christ and he's being using the spirit and he's healing other people. There are people in this room that I would love to pray for you because they will do the very same thing that Peter and John did for this crippled man. And so typically we close at a time of reflection. We have uh, communion. We have the bread and cup, which is a tangible reminder of the sacrifice Jesus made for our sins. Um, and there's uh, some here. There's also one in the back that you can take. There's also gluten-free in the way back. Um, and you can take in that, partake in that. But what I want to encourage you in this time as well is if you have something crippling, anything, or you have something that you feel like is starting to creep in, I think you should pray about it. I hate to say should, but I think you should pray about it. I, I, when I was praying for this, I felt like the Spirit was just like, Trey, there's somebody in this room who really needs prayer right now. Who's going to need prayer on Sunday? I wrote it in my notes. That was five days ago, and I, tr- I, st- I still believe it today. So there are people in the back with prayer lanyards who'd love to pray for you. I'll be up here. I'll pray for you. There's someone beside you that'll pray for you. If you're like, I don't know about that one, Trey, then, then that's fine. We have people all over that can pray for you. But we want to spend this time praying for one another, uh, taking in the Lord's Supper, or you can just sit and reflect and meditate on the scriptures. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.